All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this magnificent privilege, this honor of gathering together as family, Father. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free. Thank you for always being so faithful to us as your word states, your faithfulness, your loving kindness is renewed every morning. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are not able to be with us this morning, but earnestly desire to be here with us. We just pray that uh, they understand that we desire that they're with us, but your will be done. And we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that we're very grateful also to your patience, but that we might evangelize them at some point so we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this message and the goings-on. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, what is good and who gets to define it? Part 14. Before we regain our footing again with our primary course of study, just a quick review of the past couple of weeks from the pulpit. As there have been a fair amount of what I like to call moving parts. Anytime you have um, little, you know, mini-series sort of uh, inserted into our primary course of study, things can get a little bit um, loose, if you would. So I just want to sort of tie those things up. For starters, I gave you this on Thursday, um, the idea of loving like Jesus, the whole idea of manning up and then love hung on a cross, this kind of love was born to die on a cross, Jesus Christ was born to die specifically, um, that manning up and loving the way Christ did are basically the same thing. And so we sort of surveyed our own souls. Uh, loving like Jesus, really loving like Jesus. This is what it looks like. It's easy to love someone, as Jesus would say, uh, when they're easy to love, in other words. How about when you don't like the other person? For example, Luke 6, 32 to 33, up here on the board. Luke 6, 32. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? In other words, big deal. They, are, they love you. There's a, there's a, there could even be a uh, subjective love on your behalf in that sense because it's kind of easy to love somebody that loves you first, right? A lot easier to love someone that says, hey, I love you. And you're like, you do? Oh, I love you. Versus, you know what? You're a rotten egg. And what do you say? Do you say I love you? Or do you drop the hockey gloves and have a problem. That's what Jesus was saying. Big deal. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Big deal. It's a lot harder to love those, especially your enemies. Up here on the board, how about when other, the other person doesn't, quote, deserve it, as if we have a right to say that? I mean, who does deserve any form of love? Technically speaking, we're talking about God's love here. So how about Romans 3.10 on that one? 
It is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Who deserves that kind of love? No one. We're a bunch of rascals, right? We're not worthy of anything, really. So who are we to say, oh, you, you don't deserve my love? Whatever that means. I think in that case, your eyes are on the wrong person. Or how about this, when the person is quote-unquote bad, Romans 5, 7. Do you love them then? Up here in the board, Romans 5, 7, 8. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What do you mean when the person is bad? You don't want to lay down your life for a bad person? Uh, hello, the cross? You were really bad. And Christ died for you. And we're supposed to man up and have Christ's love. And then finally, of course, loving like Jesus really, when you don't feel like it. I think that's a famous one. Most people nowadays don't feel like doing much other than serving themselves, let's face it. Most people don't feel like doing a whole lot. So it's very common that I think people don't feel like loving, at least not the way Jesus loved, because the way Jesus loved was self-sacrificial. It was always for others, always had other people in mind, whatever he did. Acts 20, 35, and everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, in other words, when you don't feel like it, work harder. Push through. That's what it means to persevere. People like to talk about, you know, they use big words like, I persevere, I'm an overcomer. You might even know the Greek, nakao, I'm an overcomer, I'm this, I'm that, I press on, I fight the good fight, I finish the course, and I have eagles and mountains and posters and all that kind of stuff. But then when push comes to shove, I don't feel like getting off the couch. I don't feel like making that phone call. I don't feel like putting my foot down in my family. I don't feel like leading. I don't feel like, and you fill in the blanks, I don't feel like it. I don't even like that person. They're kind of getting on my nerves. I'd rather just, you know what? Here's 50 bucks. Go to Dave and Buster's for the day. Get out of my hair, kid. That kind of thing. That's not manning up and that's not loving. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, all of this was for the sake of perspective off of the coattails of those two miniseries, Manning Up, there were two parts on that, and then two on Christmas. And again, the overall picture looked like this, loving like Jesus, really. When you don't like the other person, when the other person doesn't, quote, deserve it, when the other person is, quote, bad, and when you don't feel like it. And the Spirit basically said very simply, to, quote, man up is to abide in love. If you're ever in doubt, well, what does that mean? You know, where do I start? 
a lot of, you know, I'm some, some men were convicted over the past couple of weeks on this topic. You know, I haven't been really manning up. I've been sort of a chump in my family as a husband, as a father, as a, I don't know, whatever, a leader in whatever realm they happen to be leading in. And they say, well, how do I start? It's pretty obvious. Love. Not selfish love. Not love that says, well, I'll love them if they're worthy of my love. Well, Jesus said, what well, big deal? He said, love your enemies, right? He said, pray for them, right? When's the last time you prayed for your enemies instead of yourself or the people you love? Oh, Lord, I love that person so much. Please bless them out. That one's easy, right? Or, dear Lord, I love myself so much. Please bless me out. <laughs> right? We love those ones, right? What about praying for your enemy? What about the person who just, I don't know, stuck a knife in your tire for no apparent reason? That doesn't happen to you guys? <laughs> I live in the gangster part of Rehoboth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Manning up means to have, a lot of times, to show mercy at the least favorable time. To show up with a whole basket full of grace when the person just smacks it out of your hands. And now it's all over the ground. And your heart might be shattered. And you pick it all up. Because you know what? That's what a righteous person does. Gather themselves up. They dust themselves off and say, I'll be back. Because Jesus did a whole lot more than we'll ever do. Right? Let's read this lovely passage again together and then move on. Go to John 15, verse 8. John 15, verse 8. <clears throat> John 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I, I, you know, I don't want to harp on this, but man, oh man. Jesus was just not afraid to say that, was he? He just wasn't afraid to talk about fruit. I don't know what Christians' problems are. I think they're trying to hide behind something. But anyways, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Do you see it? If you don't bear fruit then you're not a disciple of his. He never had a problem with that. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And that's why the Spirit put that little laundry list up there just to sort of pique your attention. Do you love like Him? Because this is His commandment, that you love one another. And if you read like Galatians 6, it says we're supposed to bear each other's burdens even. We're not supposed to be interested in pounding people into the dirt. Matter of fact, that same chapter says if someone's transgressed against you, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's what Scripture says. What's, what's, um, I'm not saying that harsh words aren't necessary sometimes, but 
when the moment calls for it, what's more difficult, to treat somebody that way or to drop the hockey gloves? It's really hard when someone's in your grill, in your face. That's how we talk in the hood. In your grill. You guys think I'm kidding. Come visit. Can't even cook out anymore. You guys think I'm kidding you? I have to wear colors on the, on the deck and everything. I don't even know where I'm at now. You guys kept me going. You guys were encouraging me to be ridiculous. It's your fault. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. I know where I was at. Do you love like Jesus Christ? That's why we have that list. Love one another the way I have loved you. Now, his first and most magnificent expression of love was what he did on the cross for you. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what love looks like, to lay down your life for others. These are not vapid words. These are not words that don't have magnitude to them. I think people just, and myself included, I can get familiar. And that sounds awful to even say, I feel like bawling. Familiar with that truth. It's awful to think I would become familiar with anything that my Lord says. But we do. Yeah, 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 it's greater to... Greater love is no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. Yeah, yeah, don't esteem others more highly than us. So yeah, 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 yeah. We get out of the way, you're blocking the TiVo signal. Oh, there they are again. You know, oh, there's a text to me again. How do I put this thing on silence? That's not what Jesus was talking about. It's easy to love, right? Oh, they're texting me again. They want to bring over some beer. I love this person. Oh, I love them. So, oh, they want to do this for me. Oh, they got a new pocketbook for me. Yay. But what about the other one? Ooh, silence. Voice jail. Off to voice jail. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's not something to be taken lightly. I guess that's what the Spirit's saying here. It's not something to be taken lightly. Jesus' example of manning up was the manner in which he loved. Go to John 10, 17. John 10, verse 17. Don't make these beautiful passages of Scripture punchlines at parties. Don't, them, don't make them um, accent pieces for you trendy people. Don't, don't make them access pieces in your soul. Make them the centerpiece. You know, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, add a little flair. I guess I'll love someone today, or I guess I'll lay down my life a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll throw a buck in the basket or something, and I'll, or I'll, I'll help that old person sweep the floor. Probably shouldn't be tasked with that in the first place, but nobody else seems to be taking up the mantle, so that's another story. You're not a hero for doing those things. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me. Why? Why does the Father love anyone? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. So that I lay down my life. Do you see why the, the Father loved the Son? Because the Son was willing to lay down his life. Now, he may have not even, at, just to put this into perspective, 
to superimpose that on our own lives, I don't know anyone here that's, that's called to hang on a cross. That's not your plan as far as I know. So, but the willingness should be there for the joy set before you. The willingness should be there to do anything the Lord asks of you. And that's what God the Father loves. It's the willingness. It's the attitude of servanthood, of servitude, of submissiveness, of respect, of love. Jesus said, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. There's a whole lot in there. But that's how Jesus went about living his life. And he was the ultimate man. As the Spirit's been highlighting lately, the idea of loving others the way Christ did implies the following up here on the board. Every aspect. To love like Jesus is to possess a love that permeates every aspect of life. It isn't just a passing emotional response. It is much, much bigger. It is on the same plane with eternal life. For God is both love, 1 John 4, 8, and eternal life, 1 John 5, 11, 12. Again, to love like Jesus is to possess a love that permeates every aspect of life. It isn't just a passing emotional response. It is much, much bigger. It is on the same plane with eternal life, for God is both love and eternal life. And that's how you have to think about love. This is not some emotion that you have. This is a reality. That's why he says, uh, the Bible says, abide in my love. Abide in it. It means it becomes you. It's you. It's who you are. It's what you stand for. You just love. And whatever circumstances, whatever outside stimuli there are in your life, you respond based on who you are. That's why the Bible says, um, you know, what comes out of the mouth originates inside. You push a lot of people to the limit, and you hear a lot of stuff come out of their mouths, and you're like, where did that come from? It came from a heart that really doesn't love, loves itself more than others. Just push somebody a little bit. I do it all the time. I test. It's part of my job to test people. I test people all the time and see how they react. I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a pretty good-sized percentage there. People fail miserably. Why? Because God wanted to reveal to me and them that they were selfish lovers, that they do things for the wrong reasons, and He's trying to correct them. Nobody's perfect, so I don't judge anyone. Just call us, you know, spade a spade, so to speak. Now, these things may sound lofty, given the world will have you believe that love is something that can be given, you know, taken, swapped, and even destroyed. That's the world's definition. Give it, take it, leave it, destroy it even. But you must understand that none of these things are true when it comes to God's love. Certainly not the last proclamation, which is to say that true love can never be destroyed. That's a fact. True love can never be destroyed. That's why in our own way, in our own lives, often the greatest display of love is through mercy. Because attacks on your love 
require a specific response, and the Bible calls it mercy. When someone is failing miserably, either transgressing against you or some other way, it requires mercy. And that's the first response that a truly loving individual will have. So in our own way, in our own lives, often the greatest display of love is through mercy. Mercy being what we show others when they are in the wrong. It's like the old saying, you don't really know someone until times get tough. How do you respond when times get tough? Do you judge or do you show mercy? You don't really know someone until times get tough. That's what Jesus was saying behind the scenes. When he said, big deal, you love people who love you. How about when times get rough? How about when your enemy's at your doorstep? What are you going to do then? It's easy to love. It's easy to show love. When someone says, oh, I love you, and they're being kind and gracious in their own way. Big deal, Jesus said. Even sinners do that stuff. So it's true. You don't really know someone until times get tough. It's so much easier to simply cast judgment than to show mercy for most people because they lack a certain love. And as I alluded to earlier, these are the folks, and it might be ourselves, we can be selfish lovers. I mean, the world is full of them. Without God's love, you don't have a prayer. You will be a selfish lover. I don't care what you say. Believer or unbeliever. If you're lacking love, if a person lacks love, they lack the constitution to stick around when times get tough. That's why one of the things I mentioned uh, during Bill's memorial service was the idea that Bill and Lois were so magnificent in their marriage. Why? Because they met at Jesus Christ, who is love. They greeted each day at Him. Not perfect. Is that fair, Lois? Not perfect. If Bill was here, he'd be like, nope, not perfect. But that's where they met. And when times get tough, if your eyes are on each other, you're going to fail. If your eyes are on Jesus, you're going to pass the test. Especially in marriage. But you see, most people get married now, and they're not looking at Jesus Christ. They're looking at the other person first. And there's a selfish love there. Whoa, she's hot. Oh, he's hot. Yeah, what about when they get old and wrinkly and stuff's on the floor? (laughs) I meant like socks. (laughs) You people are sick. I know where your heads are at. You people are sick. Now I gotta get that visual out. Give me a moment. I gotta live in a hood. It'll be tough. I'm serious. What are you going to do? That's not love. That's the kind of love that the world is. That's what Jesus was saying. Even sinners love like that. That's not my love, he said. So if a person lacks love, they lack the constitution to stick around when times get tough. That's the problem in families now, in homes. Christ isn't the centerpiece anymore. So what's to love? I, mean, I would argue some kids love their video games more than they love their parents. They certainly spend more time with them. 
It's unbelievable. What do you expect out of that type of an institution? That's an ungodly institution. Selfish lovers are easy to spot. They're the ones who turn their backs on you when you're down and out. They lack mercy because their love is always about them, not others. They're not interested in helping you up when you fail. So they turn their backs on you. And that's not a relationship. That's certainly not. If you think about the eternal nature of our relationship with God through Christ, that's not it at all, is it? That's not Jesus' way. That's not God's way at all. He never turns his back on us. But we're miserable, and we can be selfish lovers, even we believers. Unbelievers don't even have a choice, but we believers certainly can do that thing. This is why the apostle of love, John, spoke so plainly about the distinctions between believers and unbelievers. Go to 1 John 4, 8. Here are the extremes. John had no problem. He was like Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Trained directly by Jesus Christ. He had no problem. No problem saying things that just were matter of fact to him. 1 John 4 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You see, I love that about John. He's just kind of like, yeah, that's true. The one who does not love doesn't know God, for God is love. Those are disjoint. Those are mutually exclusive things. You can't say you love and then be the way you are. If you do not love, then you do not know God. If you can't say you know God but don't love, let me put it that way. For example, to our previous point up here on the board, To love like Jesus is to possess a love that permeates every aspect of life. It isn't just a passing emotional response. It is much, much bigger. It is on the same plane with eternal life. For God is both love. We just saw that in 1 John 4, 8. God is love and eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 to 12. John wasn't saying that a believer can't fail the love test, if you want to call it that. God knows we do fail. God knows we can be selfish lovers. God knows that's almost our definition half the time with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's so faithful to us. He's the perfect husband and we're just a bunch of hoes trashing around, tramping around with the world. It's disgusting. Just think about that. Oh, you don't want to have that visual? That's the real visual that matters. What he was saying is, the Apostle John, if a person is void of God's love, they are void of eternal life, and therefore void of God. Why? The point on the board. God is both love and eternal life. They're not little separate accounts. They're not little certain aspects where he's one one day and one the next. or they're disjun- No, he's always love and he's always eternal life. So if you don't have love, you don't have eternal life, you don't have God. That's the picture of an unbeliever. A person's love for others testifies to their salvation, as John stated. Go to 1 John 5.11. 1 John 5.11. And don't be afraid to know this, to own this, my friends, to possess this, lambano, literally, to own this thing. It's not a problem. This is exactly what is true. 
about eternal life in Christ Jesus. 1 John 5.11 In the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Own that. Own it. If a person doesn't proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then they don't have Him. If they don't confess Him as such, then they don't have Him. And you shouldn't expect anything in terms of love out of them, at least not godly love. Because somewhere hidden behind all that is the only thing they have motivating them, which is the flesh. And the flesh is completely self-absorbed and selfish and awful. I didn't say that. That's the Word of God. Some of you are like, oh, but I know some nice people and they're unbelievers. What do you want me to say? God's a liar? You want me to try to, what, work that out in your own soul? God's not a liar. And this is what the Word of God says. Unbelievers do not have this love. Period. What do you want me to do? Argue with you about how Mr. and Mrs. Smith over here who are unbelievers are such wonderful people and we ought to revere them and they have certain love and they have God. No, they don't have godly love. They have selfish love. Somewhere behind it is them. And they say, oh, but they do things for each other. That's great. Either God's telling the truth or God's a liar. And I know which one I believe. Again, the point on the board, to love like Jesus is to possess a love that permeates every aspect of life. It isn't just a passing emotional response to stimuli. It is on the same plane with eternal life, for God is both love and eternal life. These are the fundamental truths in our lessons as of late, as we continue to investigate what is good. And the Bible calls this wisdom, up here on the board. When we find what is truth, then we find the definition of good. That's what we've been searching out in Scripture. What's real? What's good? Well, what's the Bible say? Because the Bible is the very Word of God, which by definition is the absolute truth. That's why we went through all that, you know, um, uh, Sola Scriptura, um, you know, the inerrant Word of God, just to shore that up in your soul, that when you read your Bible, you can believe every word of it. That it doesn't matter if it reads and you're like, boy, that just doesn't jive at all with 2017. I know. The world's getting worse. Not, It's getting further from the truth, not closer to it. It's more antagonistic to this book than it ever has been. And you know what? That's prophesied. It's prophesied. It's the way it's supposed to go. When we find what is truth... Then we find the definition for good. Proverbs 4, 5, 7, 4, 5 to 7, and James 3, 17. We'll look that up here on the board. Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. You want to understand this stuff? You want to understand what it means to man up? What it means to love like Jesus Christ loved? Get some wisdom. Where do you get the wisdom from? The Word of God. Where are you going to get it? From a TV? Jerry Springer? Oprah? 
Dr. Phil, where are you getting your wisdom from? Books? Fiction books? I, I would be willing to bet a lot of people get their quote-unquote wisdom from authors of fictional books. That's why most people go, they, they look romantically at people, you know, like Fabio on the cover. Where's my Fabio? I'm sorry, Carol. I knew we weren't supposed to let that out. But Tom, you're her Fabio, despite the short hair. Do you know what I'm saying? If you get your, if you get your idea about love from a, a romance novel, a, a, someone's rendition, some, art, some author's rendition of what true love is, you've got problems. You are setting yourself up for major, major letdowns. And, but I would be willing to bet that's where most, I don't know if men read a whole lot of romance novels, but most women, it seems, do and then they get these expectations. It's like, what are we doing here? That doesn't look anything like the love that Jesus Christ described between a man and a woman. Nothing. You are gonna, you're setting yourself up for a big letdown. That's not wise. Go get understanding before you make a huge mistake. Do you know how unpopular that is, the last two minutes of this sermon? Do you know how unpopular that is in this world? I'm like, an, I'm like a dinosaur, and I'm only 48. I know I only look like 38, but I'm 48, surprisingly. <laughs> I'm a dinosaur at 48. I don't have a problem with it. I, I love it, but that's the way it is. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom and with all your acquiring, get understanding. With that said, we need to press on with part 14 of what is good and who gets to define it. Again, that was just to sort of put some of the pieces together over the last couple of weeks. Been a lot of moving parts for us. So we're on part 14 again. We're going to pick up this. I'll go quickly because most of it's review at this juncture. We've been using this uh, working framework, as I like to call it, general versus special revelation, just to sort of ferret it out. We've been using Psalm 19, 1 through 14, the first half being, or speaking to general revelation, which is God witness, God's witness to, of himself through creation. And we looked at that pretty exhaustively. And then special revelation, where God reveals himself directly through Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, etc., and acts. And we've read Psalm 19, 7 to 14 uh, at least three, four times. So <coughs> for the sake of, <laughs> excuse me, for the sake of time, we're going to skip that this morning. Nonetheless, up here on the board, in that wonderful passage um, from the psalmist, we read uh, on this special, the topic of special revelation. In the Old Testament, the word law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and judgments of the Lord, these are all speaking to uh, God's special revelation um, and, and it's in alignment with the New Testament where, for example, John describes uh, such things as the Word, the Word of God, or the Living Word, which was walking amongst us at one point 2,000 years ago, as we'll see this morning. For example, we noted that God was with Adam and Eve in the garden before and after the fall. That's certainly a special revelation. Uh, the Bible reveals accounts of him speaking face-to-face -face with them both, and the serpent. And that's what we would call special revelation. 
Before we enjoyed our side lessons, we also noted a sort of epitaph uh, to Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy 34.10. Deuteronomy 34.10. We're just going to dig through some scripture. Probably obvious what you're going to see in scripture, but like the Word of God says, you know, who are we to get, quote, bored? I mean, we have to see this stuff firsthand. We have to see the accounts in the Word of God. You shouldn't just take Pastor Ed's word for it. Oh, don't even bother. Just believe me. The Lord spoke to some people face to face. He was in a burning bush, you know, and he did. Don't even, don't even worry about that. Old Testament stuff is boring. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do that to you. You need to see it for yourself in Scripture because I know that's the one thing that can impart ultimately faith to your soul because that's what God the Holy Spirit requires. Deuteronomy 34.10 since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So that's special revelation. This is as far as we got with this. Now let's turn our attention to a familiar special revelation of himself, to Moses through the scene with the burning bush. Go to Exodus 3, 1. Exodus 3, verse 1. So again, we're just surveying Scripture. Nothing fancy. Uh, not a whole lot of synthesizing going on. Just you seeing for yourself in Holy Scripture what the Word of God has to say about special revelation. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a, blaze, or in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here and move your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So that's a perfect example of special revelation. God hasn't just spoken to mankind at various points in human history. He's also performed miracles to validate and confirm those who were witnessing to him. For example, go to uh, Exodus 14:19. Exodus 14:19. So there's been a variety of ways throughout human history where special revelation is uh, is seen. Exodus 14:19. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. That would have been a, quite a scene, huh, to see that? Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind and all night, all night and turned the sea into dry land. 
so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses <clears throat> stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the undeniable truth in that moment was that God was with Moses, performing a miracle. Hence, Moses was his chosen vessel, his communicator, his mediator, in a sense. And so that those witnessing such events, they would be convicted that God was truly performing miracles through his chosen vessel, Moses. This is certainly another account of special revelation, and it was truly good. This is similar to what uh, he chose to do when he spoke to some regarding his own son, Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew 3.16. Matthew 3.16. <clears throat> Again, just some more scripture on special revelation. Matthew 3.16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, that's certainly special revelation. How about Matthew 17.3? Matthew 17.3. Matthew 17.3 And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. One more reference on that topic. Go to John 12, 28. John 12, 28. John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come, from my, come for my sake, but for your sakes. So again, these are all instances of what we would call special revelation in the Word of God. Up here on the board, again, special revelation where God reveals himself directly. Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, or even acts. Again, <clears throat> we might rightly consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ as one really big special revelation, given the fact that he is God incarnate. I mean, he's the, the big special revelation, if there is such a thing, if you want to speak that way. Go to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. And I suppose it doesn't get any more special than that. Hebrews 1, verse 1. And the Spirit just has a little bit to say about this particular special revelation. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. You see, Jesus Christ is Himself a special revelation because He's God. Just put that into perspective. Because He's God. So in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. As we know... Jesus is God. Jesus is God. As we just read in Holy Scripture, He is the exact representation of God's nature, which means the following, and it's an interesting Greek word, look at it, character. Exact from character means a tool for engraving, an exact reproduction or impression that also reflects inner character. It's where we get the English word character, obviously. So we're not talking about, you know, if you don't, Jesus, you know, God doesn't necessarily, God the Father necessarily doesn't look like Jesus, per se. We're talking about character here. You see? We're talking about character. Jesus didn't, quote, look like God, strictly speaking, but he possessed God's character, the perfect impression of his nature. That's what Hebrews 1.3 describes. That's the original Greek right there, character. It means a perfect impression. It would be like, you know, you know, if, if nature was moldable, God just said, well, here's me, and this is what my nature looks like, and it looked like a cookie cutter, and, a poo -poo, and there was Jesus. Same nature. A perfect impression with all the nuances and everything. And it would be perfect. And that's what the Bible says. So if we're talking about special revelation, I mean... The big one walked among us. That's pretty special. That's pretty real. And he was an exact representation of his father's nature. 
So I was thinking about this. Um, what does that mean? You know, about like how do we relate to that? And I was thinking about phrases like, um, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or um, you know, like father like son, or like mother like daughter type thing. We have all these sort of. <coughs> we have all these sort of um, phrases that we use in society to sort of say, you know, this one's a lot like that one. This one's just like his father or something like that. And I'm compelled to think about familial relationships that seem to follow this pattern. For example, not that I need to share this, but I think my, the four of us in my immediate family would agree. In my home, it's an accepted reality that Tammy and Joey share common natures, and Sean and I do likewise. But none of us are exact representations, not even close. Not even close. But we do say, oh, geez, you remind me of so-and-so. You're just like dad or you're just like mom or something like that. But that's as good as it gets. We might see characteristics in each other. Yet the Holy Bible describes Jesus, check this out, as exact. Make no mistake about it. That word's not a mistake. It says the exact representation not, you know, oh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. No, this is exact. An apple falling far from the tree, not that far, implies a little bit, right? Kind of goes boom and then rolls over here. Didn't happen with Jesus. Exact. And it's speaking about his character and nature. That's an incredible reality that we ought not dismiss because when Jesus spoke or acted or did anything, it was reflective of his Father in heaven. Just think about that. Everything he said, did, or, any, or anything was precisely the same as God would do, would have him do, would have himself do. Why? Same exact nature. That's incredible. That's unbelievable. Just because he chose to not use certain aspects of his deity didn't mean that his heart wasn't consistent with his father's. What this means is that when we read Bible passages about Jesus, we ought to always remember that we are reading about the very special revelation of God himself. And we don't think like that naturally, do we? We say, oh, Jesus was a lot like his dad, or Jesus did stuff that his dad really liked, and you know that, you know, and we get sort of, I don't know, earthly about it. We think in terms of, you know, like father, like son. No, these were exact, exact. That's the Greek word character, exact representations of his nature. It's supernatural. In Matthew three seventeen, when a voice out of the heavens said. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God was essentially saying, I really like myself. Seriously. He's like, you see, that's the son of God, part of the Trinity, right? I really like him. You know why? Because he's me. He and I are the same. Listen to him. Didn't he just say that in Scripture? We just saw that. So listen to him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to what he's saying. Watch what he's doing. He never messes up. He's perfect. 
I got goosebumps just thinking about that. It's unbelievable. Can you imagine walking with him? I cannot wait. Bill, you dog. I cannot wait. <laughs> so he was really saying, when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he was basically saying, I really like myself. So listen to what I have to say when I'm down there on earth ministering to you in the flesh. So on the topic of special revelation, has there ever been a greater example than the Son of God's incarnation? I mean, the only other candidate would be the inspired Word of God itself, but as it turns out, is equivalent to Jesus Christ anyways. John 1, right? So we have the very best. We have God. We have His revelation. We have, we have an understanding of His nature because we have this. And Jesus Christ embodied this. I guess what the Spirit's saying here is simple. And then I've got to close here. It's good to hang on every word and activity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good. You want to know what's good? That's good. Isn't that what our quest is? What is good and who gets to define it? Well, just put that in perspective. I just gave you that. It's good to hang on every... Don't hang on everybody else's word. Not, not mine, not anyone's. But it's really good to hang on every word and activity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. Because not only is He the Son of Man in His humility, but He is the Son of God in His deity. And just as a side note, I don't want, don't go drawing hard lines in the sand, please. About those two titles. I'm only using them to draw a distinction for the sake of teaching you. He's both, right? He's the Son of Man, He's the Son of God. But we know there is a humanity side of Him and a deity side of Him that we can learn about. But they were never disjoint. He's the exact representation of God's nature. All of them. So again, the point the Spirit's making here is on this idea of special revelation, it's good to hang on every word and activity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After all, He is the perfect example of God's special revelation to mankind. He said, you, you want to know me? Here I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Only one entity, one deity can say that. That's God. Here I am. And then, thankfully, 2,000 years ago, we still have an account of at least some of what he said and did. So this means that we ought not just observe or contemplate his life, but listen, receive the full intended impact of his words, no matter what they were. Greatest mistake I've ever made, ever, as a pastor. Somehow, I found myself not reading the Gospels. Greatest mistake I have ever made. It was a learned thing, but fine. I blame me for being lazy. Greatest mistake I've ever done. Not hanging on the words of my Lord. If I'm going to hang on anybody's words, 
You know, just like all the other writers, if I'm going to hang on anybody's word, it better be the red letters. It better be him. <laughs> what am I doing? What are we doing when we take him out? Satan's really smart. That's all I can say. So we need to re receive the full intended impact of his words no matter what they were. Just like he said about certain things. Fruit, love, all those kinds of things. Denying self. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. Oh, you know, all that stuff is real. Jesus wasn't a guy that ran around trying to confuse people. He was literally perfectly honest and perfectly open about himself. Here I am. God's special revelation in the flesh. Here I am, God. And he said certain things. And then people want to sweep things under the carpet. No. Go to uh, Luke 19.37. Luke 19.37. Speaking of re special revelation... Luke 19.37 As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the, of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. In other words, God, <laughs> God's voice is not going to be muffled. Amen? You can't, you're not going to tell God. You can't reveal yourself. This is the Pharisees, right? This is why Jesus had such a distaste for the Pharisees. He despised them. He loved them to try to save them in that sense, but he despised them. He said, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So when the Son of God speaks, this is the point on the board, when the Son of God speaks, God is speaking. Because he's the exact representation of God's nature. And since God never lies, whenever Jesus spoke, he spoke the truth. I had uh, someone write to me regarding the latest blog titled The Son of Man. Quote, what struck me as I read was the fact that every word and every action of the Lord was purposeful. As humans, we often do or say things that leave us asking ourselves, why did I just say or do that? Never with him. That is just another unfathomable truth about him that brings security to our lives. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen? So in Luke 19.40, when Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You know what? He wasn't lying. In this case, he was actually prophesying. Go to Matthew 27.50, and then I'll close. Matthew 27.50. He wasn't lying. 
You cannot muzzle God. <laughs> but yet that's what people try to do when they, you know, they take their Bibles and they rip pages out of it. Or they, they take their Bible and they throw it on the shelf where it collects dust. That's what man is trying to do. He's trying to silence the voice of God through truth, through Holy Scripture. That's what uh, evil religions do when they say, you're not qualified to read your Bible. Put it on the side. That's what cults do. Take it from me, super guru. I'm the only one who has a special revelation. They are trying to silence the Word of God. Matthew 27, 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And you know what? The rocks were split. Luke 19, 40, The stones will cry out. How about that? How about the fact, the evidence that the rocks were split as part of this event? this magnificent event in human history. So you see that even Jesus was prophesying there. Even the rocks will speak aloud. Who do you think did that? And for whose benefit, as Jesus said, and for whose benefit does God reveal himself when he reveals himself? It's for us. He don't need, to, he don't need a mirror. He knows who he is. He's perfect. This is for us. How dare we ever try to muzzle him as futile as that sounds. So we're out of time. We'll continue to investigate under the principle of sola scriptura. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for tying us all together, knitting our souls together, our hearts even, Father. For we always, at least in good measure, intend to meet and rejoice at your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We just ask for your blessings and traveling mercies as we take the things we've learned here this morning out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.